I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Alsa Hunason. She's the author of Being Seen, One Deafblind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. She also writes and edits speculative fiction and is an activist for disability rights. She joins me today to talk about disability representation and fighting ableism in society. Elsa, thank you so much for talking with me. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Your book is both a memoir and it's also a commentary on disability in our society, especially when it comes to media. So I'm curious, was there a particular moment that just said, you know, you just like, I have to write this book. I have to, I have to say this. I mean, I think it was a combination of working on so many essays about the topic of disability media that I realized I was halfway to a book. And it was also the fact that I wasn't seeing the needle move. Every time I saw a new TV show or a new movie about disability, it was the same problems coming up over and over and over again. And I realized that at this point, nobody had really said out loud in a book the way that we display disability in our media is causing real harm. So I figured it was something I could say. You write near the beginning of the book, if you're reading this for inspiration, don't. And we're gonna get into a bigger discussion around that particular thought in just a moment. But I I wanted to ask, why do you want people to read this book and what do you hope they take away from it? I hope people take a sense of learning from it because I think a lot of people look at disability and they've been told for their whole lives not to look, not to ask questions, not to be curious. And I think that does real harm. Instead, they say, oh, you're disabled. We have to put you up on this pedestal because you've done these things that I, a non-disabled person, can't do instead of asking what it's actually like to live in a disabled body. And so I hope people engage with that curiosity a little bit and engage with the challenge of not othering people, but instead viewing their experiences. I I also want to say there are a lot of footnotes in this book, and I am such a fan of the footnotes that are just there to be snarky. Yes. Well, I'm a former academic. I did my master's degree at Sarah Lawrence College, and I do love a good footnote. And that was something that came through in the text as I was realizing that I needed the footnotes to give them a sense of what it's like to be inside my brain. It was amusing um, and also incredibly helpful. I have a massive reading list from those footnotes that I want to go through and, and follow up on. Have you heard feedback from folks who have read the book in the months since it came out? I have. It's been overwhelmingly mostly positive. A lot of disabled people have reached out to say that they felt really seen. Even even disabled people who have different disabilities than I do have said that they felt really seen by the book, that for a lot of other blind and deaf women, they've said, this mirrors my childhood experience almost identically. You know, there's, there's always the people who don't like what you write. And so there's some people who have said that I have a chip on my shoulder and that I'm too aggressive. And to those people, I say, well, I, I highly recommend trying to live in an ableist society for 36 years and not have a teensy bit of anger <laughs> because right. I don't think that that's a reasonable ask. You talk a lot in the book about the ways disability is represented in film and literature. 
And one is that idea of the inspirational story. We saw this in Forrest Gump and Children of a Lesser God and Miracle Worker, just to name a few of the very, very obvious examples. We see this disabled person overcoming their disability, and I'm using that in quotes in different ways, and it's supposed to be mm -hmm. uplifting and, I guess, inspirational, which sounds like a good thing, but but I want to talk about what those stories mean to someone who is disabled. You mentioned before the kind of harm it does. Can you Can you get more into that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people misunderstand is that there is such a thing as overcoming your disability. There is no overcoming your own body exist in it and you live in it. What there is, is, is sort of shifting the way that you live in that body to conform to non-disabled society. So when we see a movie that takes place where we have a deaf character who does not use oral language and uses only sign language, and the sort of pinnacle of that story is the deaf character learning to speak orally, that's forcing them to conform to a standard that is non-disabled. That's expecting them to overcome, and that's in massive scare quotes, their disability in order to be more like a non-disabled person. And I don't think of that as inspiring. I think of that as forcing people to not be who they are. As I was reading the book and thinking about all of these inspiring movies centered around a disabled person, I couldn't help but think about this disparity between we love these movies, we love these books, these films, these TV shows, but then when it comes to the real world, we don't want to work harder to provide the kind of accommodations for disabled persons that might, could make life just a little bit easier. And there's such a weird disconnect there. Well, I think I want to link that a little bit to inspirational stories because we don't just view inspirational stories through a fictional lens. There is a whole category of nonfiction memoirs by disabled people that are about the extraordinary things that they have done that are feats of strength or feats of travel. And those are things that non-disabled people sometimes struggle to do. The, the piece that I point to a lot is, as an example, Eric Weyenheimer, who is a blind man who summited Everest, his frequently is touted as sort of saying, look at what blind people can do. But when we look at inspirational stories like Eric's, and we say, use that as the example of overcoming disability. What does that mean for the average blind person who isn't going to summit Everest? What about the average blind person who just wants to use, work with their guide dog and go to the grocery store? Don't they deserve the same amount of credit for living in a non-disabled world in an ableist society? It's the idea that we have to surmount and even overachieve to make something of ourselves that I think ties so tightly to inspiration as inspiration stories and how they undermine just sort of regular disabled people. The movie Coda, which just won all of the awards you wrote online, even that's got a few issues. What, what I guess, can we learn from that particular movie? I, look, I, I think that it's really important to tell deaf stories. But is a story called Coda a deaf story or is it a child of deaf adults story? And if it's a child of deaf adults story, then why were there no children of deaf adults working on the film? Why is every story that we learn about family that is not just disabled, but also non-disabled 
about the harm that that disability does to the non-disabled members of the family. Because truly it is about deaf parents who don't understand their hearing child having a love for music. And I know deaf parents who have kids who are amazing musicians and their parents are supportive of them. But it prioritizes the concept that deaf people couldn't possibly understand a hearing experience. And so that's where I have issue. I'm thrilled that a deaf actor, Troy Kotzer, won for Best Supporting Actor. I don't want to diminish the importance of that, but I do want to acknowledge that it's problematic that these stories, even when they are supposed to be about deafness, fundamentally prioritize a hearing person's experience over a deaf person's and put those two things at loggerheads instead of showing how we can live in community together. There are other stories we can tell that don't put hearing and deaf as enemies. Another interesting take from the book that you wrote about is that we tend to learn about disability based on what we see in, in TV and films and read in books. And I, I thought that was a really interesting point to emphasize because if TV and films are getting it so wrong, then that means our understand, understanding of disability is probably pretty wrong. Yeah, I when I was starting to work on the book, I asked my friends and colleagues how many blind people they knew, how many deaf people they knew, how many disabled people they knew. Have they gone to school with any disabled kids? Did they have any other disabled friends besides me? 90% of my non-disabled friends had never gone to school with a disabled kid. Most of them had never met a disabled person until their adulthood. Most of them had never worked with a disabled person. Most of them, or some of them, I was the only blind person or deaf person they had ever met in their life, which raises the question of how, how segregated our culture is between disabled and non-disabled people. And I think it's fairly sort of stratified. You have the disabled people over here and you have the non-disabled people over here. And that ties back to that access issue we were talking about. If our buildings and our restaurants and our schools are still inaccessible, it means we can't really be in community, in community with non-disabled people. So that cuts off those social opportunities. So if the only disabled people you've ever seen have either been on the street, you don't talk to them, you don't know what their experience is, but you just saw a wheelchair user rolling down a street in New York, or it's from a movie or a TV show, that influences the way that you view disability. And seeing that person rolling the wheelchair down New York doesn't give you, I, you, you mentioned the number in the, in the book that I was surprised by subway stations, which everybody in New York gets around on the subway and how completely inaccessible, except for a handful that subway stations are. You yeah. Know. New York city subway system is not accessible to disabled people on a number of vectors. That's just one of them. Yeah. I've been in too many subways where the escalator is not working and suddenly it's a moment of, Oh, okay. So how's this going to work? The escalator doesn't work or the elevator doesn't work and you're a guide dog handler and you're not supposed to take the dog on the escalator because it's not safe for their little paws. And so then you end up in a situation where you have your service animal with you. You need to protect them, but you also don't have any way to get where you're going. So what happens in those moments for you? Well, when I was handling my guide dog in 2019 and 2020, I at one point actually picked up my 70 pound Labrador on New Jersey transit because there was only an escalator and put him over my shoulder and went down the escalator holding the dog. 
Wow. Because nobody was going to give him space to stand on the escalator and I needed to get home. Did anyone say anything to you? <laughs> no. I'm just, I'm just curious. Well, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's New Jersey transit. Nobody notices anything. <laughs> All right, I'll move on to my next area then. We're both writers. I know that we're both sci-fi nerds. And one of my biggest pet peeves, especially in speculative fiction, is this idea that all disabilities are going to be magically cured in the future or in fantasy realms that there's some sort of magical cure for different things. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of harm that particular trope can cause? And we can point to Geordie LaForge as kind of like the example that maybe everybody knows. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of problems with it. I'll start with the sci-fi future one, because I think it's really important for people to think about, which is that if you're not envisioning disabled people in the future, you're not envisioning a future where you, frankly, could age in the same way that people do. So if you envision a future in which there are no disabled people, you are envisioning a future in which there is no injury you're envisioning a future in which there is no illness and you're envisioning a future in which no one ages. That's not realistic. So how do we then envision a future where we have bodies that actually exist in the way that they do now? Because we're not talking about a future in which we can just wave a magic wand. I ask people to think about what their future really looks like. The future may include better hearing aids where you can actually get more hearing information. It can filter my hearing is filter some sound, but not all sound. When we begin to envision a future that doesn't include disability, what we're actually doing is we're envisioning a future that doesn't have people. And so that's part of the problem is that we sort of think we can just wave a magic wand and fix humanity. And that's not what's going to happen. So if you're writing a future where you are not fixing all of humanity and you have no disabled people, then you are not writing a future that you should be writing because it doesn't make any sense. You're also writing eugenicist future. And the concept of eugenics comes up a lot for me in science fiction because people will try to just sort of take out the parts of humanity that they aren't interested in talking about. Whether or not you're comfortable with calling yourself a eugenicist, that is at least somewhat eugenicist thinking. The people that I don't want to think about or talk about or participate in community with are the people who've gone away. So that's where I go with science fiction. With fantasy, I want to remind people that if you look backwards in time, even a little bit, there was actually more disability, not less. <laughs> um, you fall off a horse in 1813, you break your leg, you're never the same again. You may still ride horses, you may walk, but you're probably walking with a cane if it was a really bad break. There's a good chance that if it doesn't heal properly, you might have to have it amputated. Like, <laughs> medicine was not advanced enough to keep people from becoming disabled at the same that we have medicine here and now. And so when we are writing fantastical settings that have bare bones medicine, we are writing settings in which disability is highly prevalent. So when we try to sort of wave a magic wand in fantasy settings and say, oh, you're cured, we're not recognizing the reality of those settings as anything other than inconvenient for having disabled characters. You wrote in a lot in your book, and I guess this is where the memoir part comes in, about your own experiences as a disabled person. And it seemed like you had to put yourself in a really vulnerable place at times in writing that. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about 
I guess the emotional side of writing this book and what it was like for you? It was really tricky. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I was okay with saying publicly, but also what needed to be said publicly, because those are two very different things. Uh, the hardest chapter for me to write was the one about sex and dating, because that was a whole can of worms I actually did not want to open up, but I also knew that I couldn't write a book about the different genres and how they affect disability without talking about the way that the romance genre treats disabled people because it's really problematic. And so I found myself in this sort of tense place with my own thoughts where I was trying to decide what I could and couldn't say just for my own comfort, but what I needed to say so that other disabled people would feel like they were being represented appropriately. And that was, that was difficult. And there were a couple other places where I felt that way, but when the book came out, I felt really vulnerable. I still feel really vulnerable. Um, I, I think a lot about how I've changed since writing the book and how I don't talk about my personal life as much as I used to because I put all this out there. And yes, it's been mostly well-received and there've been a couple of people who've been jerks, but it's been pretty reasonable, but I still put a lot out there and I feel like I need to make sure I get to keep some things for myself that are just for me. One of the things that you wrote about is that you weren't raised to be a proudly disabled person, and now you're a prominent advocate for disability rights and representation. What do you think about your own transformation looking back? It was a hard one. Um, I remember when I started getting into disability rights in the late 2000s. It was like 2007-ish was when I started digging in. I was... Um, I was working on a lot of the gay marriage rallies and a lot of the gay rights protests that were happening around Proposition 8. And I was a young queer woman fighting for the rights of my family because my father had been gay and I have godparents who are gay men. And it was important to me that anybody in my family get married regardless of the gender of their intended. And I remembered sort of while I was at those protests, I, I had been struggling with ocular migraines. They were really brutal. They were the kind of ocular migraines where you can't see bright lights. You have to lay down a lot. And it had been affecting my college education. I wasn't doing well in a lot of my classes. I was really struggling. And I started to realize that the way I was being treated wasn't fair. The fact that I was having such massive medical issues when it came to my disability. And it seemed to be affecting the way that my professors viewed me as a person was when I started to realize that my disability wasn't something that I could just sort of brush under the rug anymore. Uh, and I had to start talking about not just with my professors, but with myself, who I wanted to be and how my body shaped that experience. I guess it's been a journey to today. Do you feel today more comfortable with yourself? I do, I do. I mean, I think I think some of that is that I have to be more comfortable with who I am. I am now, as you say, I'm a prominent disability rights activist and I'm also a parent. And as a disabled parent, you have to be comfortable in who you are and what you do. You can't let people look at you and see anything other than somebody who's confident in what they can accomplish for their kids.
So it's been really formative for me, even though over the last 10 years, I've definitely experienced a lot of change as a disabled person. I think parenthood has given me a sense of that sort of solidity that doesn't come from anything other than knowing that people need to view you as solid. You also wrote that the pandemic was really hard for you for a number of reasons. And I think if I if I remember that chapter correctly, that's kind of what maybe started turning towards this book in some ways. Can you talk a little bit about, about I guess, 2020 for you? It's funny. The book was contracted in 2019. And so I, I had sold the book in 2019 and I was supposed to write it in 2020. And that was, that was really what drove a lot of the challenge was that instead of sitting in my cottage writing a book where I could like go and write at a coffee shop or travel. So I had a whole bunch of travel I wanted to do for being seen. I had to sit in a 250 square foot cottage <laughs> and a book <laughs> in my brain. And that changes the experience of writing a memoir pretty significantly because it changed from being a book about being outside to being internal. And I think that's the big change between when I thought about what I wanted to write and what it ended up being. Because 2020 was hard for me. I was raised in the gay community of Seattle in the 1990s. My father died from AIDS in 1993. And I lost a lot of other family members, uh, chosen family members specifically, during that time to the AIDS crisis. And that was a significant burden on my mental health. I was having complex PTSD symptoms pretty regularly throughout the spring of 2020 and into the summer. And that affected the book too, because I was trying to deal with what I could sort out from my memory and how memory affected the way that I talked about the book. And also I was in the middle of getting divorced. You know, you just keep adding things on. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think we can sum up 2020 is not a great year for you. <laughs> Except I did not this... like 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a really important book came out of it. So kudos, I think, for what it's worth for getting through that. When we're talking about the pandemic, I think one of the frustrating things that has come out is for years, for years, disability advocates have been pushing for work from home, for accommodations for disabled workers, and so many companies said it just isn't possible. So then COVID comes along, and suddenly millions of people are suddenly able to work full time from home with with a very quick pivot for those people who weren't, you know, on the front lines in service industries or such. And it seemed like it might be a moment of change for the whole country that the disability community could, you know, maybe say, yes, this is what we've been asking for. And there are so many advantages here, but now we're seeing this push to go back to the office. Are you surprised by that? Not at all. I'm currently working pretty hard as a vocal advocate for remote work permanently. Um, the company that I work for in my day job has said that they are keeping things remote first. And I'm very glad about that because I will never work in an office. <laughs> Um, it's not something that is possible for me as a disabled person with the disabilities that I have. So until 2021, I had never had the opportunity to have a day job. I have been freelancing since 2010. The fact that my first real day job was in 2022 tells you a lot about what people are willing to do when it comes to hiring disabled people. 
but I don't have a day job. It's been a really great change for me. But I just, I think that a lot of big companies are going to have to reckon with the reality that keeping things in office is a fundamentally ableist choice to make. And by choosing remote first experiences, they're actually leaving the door open to employ disabled people. So I'm not surprised because from my experience as somebody who had tried to find a job for close to 11 and a half years, I can tell you that they don't wanna hire disabled people. And so keeping the door closed to remote work fundamentally allows them to make that choice. So I, I'm not surprised, I wish I were, but I do think that this is part of why it's so important to push companies to keep remote first as an option. We're almost out of time. I'm not looking for an encouraging message from you, but what do you think is next? I mean, how do we continue to push for disabled rights, to push for education, for awareness, to understand that Forrest Gump is not the end-all be-all of disability in real life? It, I mean, it's good you're not looking for a hopeful message because <laughs> <laughs> we have a long way to go. Um, you know, people always ask me for like the, the Pollyanna answer and I, I tend to, I, I tend to end up dead eyeing the camera. Um, I think a lot of people need to work on undoing their ableism. Like that is fundamentally a systemic issue that we're experiencing as a society. And so there are many different ways to do that. It includes reading things like my book, because yes, you do actually need to read things by disabled people that will make you uncomfortable. I promise I will make you uncomfortable. It's good for you. Um, but also, like, <laughs> yes, it will make you uncomfortable. Um, follow disabled people on whatever social media platform works for you, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or TikTok. Don't comment. Don't respond. Don't tell them, oh, I wear glasses too, or I have trouble hearing sometimes. Sit with the discomfort and listen. Because 90% of the time, what I hear from non-disabled people is, I have an aunt who's blind, or I have an uncle who's blind, or I have a sister who's blind, speaking for the disabled experience instead of actually sitting with what that experience is like. So learn from real lived experience. Don't go out and volunteer, because unless if you actually want to listen to the disabled people you're volunteering for, you have no business helping them. And also to really think about and criticize the media that you see that has to do with disability. Because I see a lot of non-disabled people who see movies like CODA and they, they come out of the theater and they're sobbing. They're like, oh, it was so moving. But it doesn't actually move the needle for them on the perception of disability. So change the way you view things. If you saw a movie about deaf people and it made you make big feelings, the next step is to actually learn about the deaf community and how you can support them. It's not to just sit with your big feelings. Can you work with your local government to make sure that there are transcripts available from community town halls? Can you make sure if you saw a movie about a blind person, can you make sure your favorite restaurant has braille menus and large print menus so that anybody can eat there? If you see somebody getting a service dog denial, are you going to stand up and do something or are you going to watch and be awkward? Because those are the little things that you can do just as a human being out in the world. You can learn to not grab disabled people by the arm without asking. You can learn to ask polite questions. And you can also teach your kids. You can teach the kid, your kids that it's okay to be disabled. You can teach your children that 
you don't stare at a disabled person and not say anything to them to them you say hi i don't know what you're using is that a white cane and if the blind person has a minute which i frequently do for small children i will say why yes it's a white cane i'm deafblind would you like to learn about it 90 percent of the time six-year-olds are like "Ooh, i get to touch a cane <laughs> so Participate in undoing the ableism that is keeping disabled people and non-disabled people separate from each other. Because if we live in community together for real, that changes a lot. Elsa, thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. You'll find a lot more about Elsa Hunison and her work on our website, including a recommended reading list if you want to dive deeper into the issues we talked about today. And you'll also find a link to one of the best Radio Lab episodes ever produced. Elsa takes us on a journey to discover the real Helen Keller and what her own relationship with that deafblind icon taught her. It's one of the best hours of radio I've ever heard. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go off the page.